Genesis 9 is where we're at today. You know, sometimes I do a New Year's message before we get back into the book of the Bible that we're studying. And for some reason this year, um, I just, it wasn't on my heart to do a New Year's message. I thought, no, we're going to get right back into Genesis. And as you'll see, it's kind of interesting because when we finish today, um, this really is a great message to begin the new year on. And if you've read ahead, you're probably shaking your head going, uh, how so? Because Genesis 9 is an interesting chapter. Um, It's a chapter that deals with the rainbow, um, the covenant that God has put between man and animal and himself that never again will he destroy the the earth by uh, flood. And then it's a chapter, as we get to the end of chapter 9, that deals with Noah's sons and, of course, the failure of Noah in his later years as he found himself uh, drinking of wine, becoming drunk, um, basically exposing himself, being naked, passing out in his, uh, probably his tent, and then what happened with one of his sons, um, as you'll show you, mocking him and the other two sons doing the right thing. And so it's kind of an interesting uh, thing that we uh, come to. And and so as we get into it this morning, um, you may be wondering, um, you know, what what are we going to be able to take from this? And the one thing I want to show you, and we'll, we'll end with this, but let me just put it in your mind right now is that if there's a message in Genesis 9 and especially as we look at this failure on Noah's part as he uh, partakes of the wine and becomes drunk and this whole thing happens it really reminds you and I that the place that uh, diligence needs to be in our life as believers. I wish we could say that we could reach a point where we don't have to be as diligent and sadly seriously I would say the majority of believers as they get older tend to be less diligent as when they were younger but you know that should not be taking place that we need to be as diligent in our later years as in our younger years and basically we're to be diligent all the time it's an interesting word the word diligence I looked it up in a thesaurus I think that's how you say that word and other words you can put in place of our meticulous conscientious thoroughness attentiveness and carefulness and so that is what we want to look at today as we finish up and kind of look at our own life and like I said now you're kind of getting it as we begin a good a new year this is a great message isn't it that Lord as I begin this year I want to be diligent and uh, maybe you have, a, have had a very diligent year then you say Lord let's repeat it and maybe you could look back and say I could have been more diligent in this area well the past is the past it's gone Paul said I press on forgetting what lies behind and that'd be my word to you right now too is forget what lies behind and let's get at it and keep pressing on. So this is where we're going to um, head this morning. And, and again, God always uh, wants that. You know, time should bring maturity. Uh, time will bring more faithfulness and help us to be faithful. But, you know, there's no such thing as reaching a point of sinlessness or perfection, is there? Faith, trust, and dependency on the Lord are needed. How long? All the days of our life. And so this is one of the things I want to show you today. Now, As we come to 9 and 10, we finish up um, Noah, if you will. Genesis is a great book. I hope you're not uh, in any way discouraged because it's long. If you will not look at its length, but you'll just think that we're going to deal with a lot of different topics, a lot of different characters, it's an awesome book to study. And so as we come to chapter 9 and 10 this morning, we will finish up Noah. And next week we'll move into 11 and Noah will be left in in the dust, okay? Um, And so that's what we we are going to do today. And and as we do that, in chapter 10, I want to 
at least point out to you, and if you'll just glance at it right now, we're not going to get into chapter 10 actually this morning. I at least want you to know that as you look at it, it it's a list of uh, Noah's descendants. And really, your Bible might title it as the list of nations. And it's interesting because in Noah's sons, um, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, you and I can trace our roots. All of us, all the people in the world get traced back to Noah's sons. And so as you get into chapter 10, and I got some pages in the back there that I uh, pulled up some information for you that you could read on your own, and I encourage you to grab those pages. What you're going to find is you're going to see that this is where all the people of the world can be traced from. And it's giving an example with Japheth, um, the Japheth's children, we come from that, come the Indo-European people that would go from India all the way to Western Europe. From his line would come the German people, the French people, the Spanish and Celtic people, the Russian, the Medes, and the Greeks. And so again, we're not going to get into that this morning, but if you'll grab one of those sheets, you can read through, and you'll kind of see that, wow. So here from chapter 10, what we know today came all the people of the earth. And really, you probably could not trace yourself back and say, ah, I'm a descendant of Ham. Because people have moved too much, and of course we don't have those records, but literally, we are, and that's where we come from. And so that's one of the things that chapter 10 is about. Now, when we think of Noah, we've been studying this, and the obvious thing with Noah is really when we think of Noah, we think of the ark and we think of the flood. And so that's the obvious. But the less obvious, and we've seen a couple, and we're going to look at a couple more today, is that we saw in our study that Noah is a righteous man. And I think that's one of the less obvious things about Noah. And so even today, as we see a failure on his part, we want to remember, though, that Really, he was a righteous man, so much so that it was only him and his children and the wives that were allowed to be spared from the flood and, and go on in, into um, life after the flood. We also remember that when Noah came off the ark, this is another less obvious thing that I think was important we talked about, that he comes off the ark, he builds an altar, and that showed us another thing about Noah is he was a worshiper of God. And that obviously was before the flood, because otherwise, if he wasn't a worshiper of God, if he wasn't a God, one who walked with God, God would have never taken him. But we know he was, and by him coming off the ark like he did, it just shows that. Well, then now as we come to chapter 9, we kind of, again, have to deal with or look at a couple things that are we'd say are kind of less obvious than everything else. And the one is the rainbow that declared the covenant God has made, and the covenant is still in place to this day for you and I. And then, of course, this drunkenness that led to nakedness on Noah's part. And so these last two are what come in this chapter, and that's what we're going to look at today. Now, let's just start. Verse 1. And God blessed Noah and his sons, and he said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and uh, fill the earth. And so this is pretty obvious if you think about it. The flood had subsided. Um, who's on the earth? Only eight people. And so what is the need? The need is for those eight people as you will, get to get busy <laughs> and to populate the earth once again. And so that is now what takes place. Verse 2, the fear of you and the terror of you, so he's going on talking about different things the Lord is, will be on every beast of the earth and on every bird of the sky with everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea into your hand they are given. Every moving thing that is alive shall be food for you I give all to you as I gave the green plants. And so, whereas before the flood, it seems that the animals didn't fear man, now God puts a fear into the animals like we have today. 
And when you go around a wild animal, the, the tendency is that animal will flee from you unless you corner it. And unless you put it in a situation where it has no choice but to go after you. But for the most part, animals kind of have the attitude like, hey, you, you kind of live your life and I'll live my life and we'll be happy. They don't really you know, say that, but that's kind of what it is. And it really, if you think about it, why did God put this fear into animals? It could be because God knew there needed to be a balance now making it harder than for man to kill. You could imagine if animals were still really friendly with man, man could have wiped them out so quickly. But by putting a fear in them, then man would have to work at it if he was going to eat animal. And it would allow the animal then to survive. And not only survive, but to repopulate and to grow. And so man was, uh, told, man was given this place now um, where he could uh, animals would be fearful. But notice that Man was also given the place, which is still in existence today, that animals, he says, I give them into, uh, into your hand, they are given. And I think that's important because our world is a little backwards today. And as the animal rights movement keeps going on and on, you'll hear things at times that almost make it sound. And in some cases, I, I believe we're headed here, is that animals are going to be given the same rights as human beings. And I assure you, the next thing to watch for is when that takes place, you will find animals and their rights being defended to a greater degree than human rights. But here we see that that isn't to be the case. That God said, into your hands I give you these animals. And so animals are never to, it's not biblical to say that they are on an equal footing with, with you and I. And the Lord now, so then he does that, but he gives permission now, doesn't he? And you notice this, for man to go ahead and eat animal life um, whereas prior to the flood, uh, man was a, a vegetarian. And again, it's an interesting question that you would say, well, why? And if I'm honest with you, we don't really know why now God said to go eat. I read one author that said it could be that after the flood, with the plant life being destroyed, that there wasn't enough there to sustain mankind. Or, and so as animals would bring another source of protein and stuff, God said, go ahead and eat that. But be honest with you, I'll be honest with you, we really don't know why at this point it, it, it happened. But it does say that man then um, was, it was okay to go ahead and eat the animals. And we should note, if you are a person that doesn't eat meat, that's okay. He didn't say you have to, but he said the option is yours. And so you could have it or not. Okay. Verse 4, only you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And so God said, go ahead and eat the animals. But he put a condition on it, didn't he? He said, the blood must be drained from the animal before the meat is eaten. And I know some of you are thinking, my goodness, I didn't really want to hear this this morning at church. I didn't eat much breakfast and I haven't eaten lunch yet. And now we're talking about uh, bleeding out animals. But that's a good thing, okay? Um, you know, you, you want that. You really do. Um, mainly because God said so, because the blood represents life, and you and I are to have a proper respect of, of life. It's God's to give. It's God's to take. But I don't want to eat animals that haven't been bled out anyway. Okay, I, I want the meat, but I don't want the blood. And, you know, it's really interesting. We sang about this morning that, of course, blood in the Bible is an important thing. Multiple times in the Old Testament it's mentioned, but, of course, it's always with the idea that it was going to, it was pointing to that sacrifice that Christ would make. When you remember when the plagues came upon Pharaoh in Egypt, and God was going to send the angel of death to take the, the the newborn. Remember, he came and he told the Israelites to do what? He said, "Take blood from the lamb, 
and put it on your doorpost. And they did that. And of course, it just totally speaks of Christ. And as the angel of death came and took life, it didn't take any of the Israelite children. And so blood there was a sign of God's mercy. When Israel affirmed the desire to follow God's ways and enter into a covenant with him, it was sealed with blood. Um, when the altar was to be uh, sanctified in the tabernacle that God instructed them to do, blood was poured upon it to uh, sanctify it. Blood was used when Aaron and his sons were entering into the priesthood and to be set aside as priests. They were uh, Blood was used in that, that ceremony. And on the Day of Atonement, that day when once a year the high priest would enter the Holy of Holies and he would uh, make sacrifice and offer blood for the atonement of the people's sins, blood was used. And of course, then as we go into the New Testament, we see so much about Jesus' blood and it seals the covenant that you and I are in today. It justifies us. It brings redemption. It brings peace with God. It cleanses us. It gives entrance into God's presence. It sanctifies us. It enables us to overcome Satan's power. And what did Peter say there in 1 Peter 1.18? That you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers. But, listen to this. This is so good. This is how you, were, you and I were redeemed. You were redeemed with the precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. So blood is a very important thing to God because it would be that, it would be the blood of Christ that would allow all mankind then to come before the Lord if they would receive Christ. And so blood represents life and it pointed to Jesus' sacrifice and the spilling of it was not to be taken lightly. Verse 5, so he says, Surely, and again, not to be taken lightly, look what he says, I will require your lifeblood from every beast I will require it, and from every man, from every man's brother I will require the life of man. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God he made him. And as for you, be fruitful and multiply. Populate the earth abundantly and multiply in it. And so the Lord is very serious about life and about the taking of life. Today, there's all types of debate about this, but as, de- as believers, our debate comes right here. We believe the Word of God. We, it's not ours to decide what we believe on an issue. We believe what God has told us, and here we see that God then instituted what we call today capital punishment. And really, this is the beginning of government, Okay. So as he's instructing Noah, this is what's to happen in the land with the people. And so we see that. And, and so if, if man was killed by another human being or if by an animal man was killed, then that human being that killed that man or that animal that killed that man, that they were their blood was to be spilt as well. And again, the reason is man had been created in the image of God, so his life is precious. And it isn't to be taken without giving an account to the Lord. And today, I think one of our problems, and you'll agree with me on this, is our society has become a society where we don't value human life anymore. I'm not saying we don't as believers. Hopefully, as believers, we do. And hopefully, the more we walk with the Lord, we'll learn to value human beings and life even more. But so much of life, there's no value. I mean, just think of the violence in our culture, in our entertainment, you know. There was a movie that came out on Christmas Day. I didn't go see it. Trust me, I saw a commercial on TV called Black Christmas. And basically it was a horror flick of just this horrible stuff that was happening. you know. And I think it took place on Christmas Day. And we don't even have to go to the movie, do we? We see it on TV. 
We see it in video games. And whether you believe this or not, um, you could choose to be wrong. Um, (laughs) But it desensitizes people, and it really does. And that's why today our kids and parents, listen, be the parent. Don't let your kids mess with some of this junk. Say no. You are the parent, and as much as you might upset your child, so be it. Upset your child. Don't let your children get into some of this junk. And so they watch, these kids watch this stuff. They play these video games, and and there's a desensitizing, and then they go out, at least those that pack guns, and just as they were killing somebody on a video game, they can kill a real human being, and they don't blink an eye. It's not a big deal. And you've heard some of the interviews, and you've heard some of the testimonies at times, and that's exactly what we see. Some of you, probably like I, saw the rates, the murder rates that came out this week and said that as of December 24th this year, we had somewhere around 26, I can't remember, I think it was 26 people killed in Seattle, but New York had 579 people killed this year. And I understand that New York is in the millions of people, way bigger than we are, but it just kind of hit me. I said, Lord, that is a lot of people. That their lives were just taken. And so the Bible um, really says, if that's the case, then that blood is to be spilled. And again, if when it's not, there's a real problem. And, and, the, and understand, the Bible does make a difference between, distinguish a difference between murder and killing. Not all killing is murder, you know. When, when those that just think every type of killing is murder, they're, they're missing it. They don't understand what the Word says. You know, there's a just cause such as self-defense. And we know that would be a reason to, if you were defending yourself and a life was taken, that is not murder That, um, in that sense. There is killing in a just war. There's accidental death or capital punishment where there's been a due process of law that has taken place. And so those are not murder. Those are killings, but they are not murder. And we also see not only here, but elsewhere in the word, that the punishment is to be carried out by the government. And so it's interesting. There's a couple reasons you may not know this. One is out of Numbers 35:31 that it says that if that an unpunished murderer defiles the land. And I don't know what to tell you. If you said, Scott, how do we apply that today? I'm not sure what. But there was at least a point in time, and whether this applies today or not, that where God told Israel that if there's a murder that takes place and that person goes unpunished, it has a way of defiling the land. And, and you wonder if there isn't some of that today that takes place as well. But the one thing we do know for sure is the second reason that it's not to go unpunished is because in Romans 13, 1 through 4, you could look at it later, it talks about the restraining of wickedness. And so it, that passage, you know, it says where, um, you know, if you do right, you don't need to fear government. But if you do wrong, then you have reason to fear government. Because why? Government is to k- take care of those who do wrong. And so the point there is that um, government is to play this role of, re- and, and it does restrain rigor. And I know the arguments. I've heard them too, where so many people say, no, statistics show that capital punishment doesn't deter. Well, I wonder if capital punishment was carried out consistently and in a timely manner if we wouldn't find what the Bible says that it is a deterrent. And so we'll just leave it at that. And I know we have different opinions, but here's where we do see the beginning of all that. And I thought it was interesting when I read Martin Luther not Martin Luther as in our country, but Martin Luther as in Germany, said years ago, he said, God establishes government and gives it the sword to hold wantonness in check, lest violence and other sins proceed without limit. And so as we see our country, that's all I can talk about, 
become more and more a non-Christian nation, more and more of a nation that is deciding its own self from man's wisdom, not God's wisdom, what do we see? We see the violence increasing, like Martin Luther said would happen if the government doesn't take care of it. And more and more, that's what we see. You know, there are obviously, even in our own city here in Seattle, there are places that you and I would probably be better off not to go at certain times of day because we know the risk is high there. And so murder is to be punished because life is precious and man has to understand that. Man is made in the image of God and thus it's not to be taken lightly. Human life is to be protected as it's precious to God. And again, I think this is so important. I, if I get my statistics correctly, since Roe versus Way was put into law, in our country alone, we have put 42 million, there have been over 42 million abortions. And I don't know if you can get your hand around that. I'm not sure I can get my hands around that. But that is a lot. That is lives that would have became, would have become human beings. And the reason is because we don't value human life. And it goes beyond just abortion, really. I think it's important that we value human life because I think it affects our relationship, doesn't it? I would want you to value me. <laughs> you know, you go, you know, he's made in God's image. I need to respect him and love him, and I want to do the same to you. And so it goes way beyond um, just some of the, the, the hot issues of the day, and it really enters into our relationship and with others. And not only that, I think it actually speaks to you and I about towards non-believers. The other night, me and my wife, and I shouldn't say this to you. If I stumble you, I'm so sorry, and tell me and rebuke me, and I'll never do it again. But we went out to dinner, and the only place to sit was in this bar. And it wasn't a bar that you thought. It was kind of, I didn't even think it was a bar. But my wife said, well, let's just go sit in there, and then we don't have to wait. And as I sat there, I kind of felt uncomfortable at first. And then I thought, you know, Lord, this is great. It's been a long time since I've sat in this type of environment and looked about what the non-believing world is about. And the Lord kind of spoke to my heart and encouraged me because, see, I need to have and you need to have, we need to value that human life before. Christians, we make a mistake when we kind of see it them and us type thing. And we put ourselves on a pedestal and we forget at one time we are on that side of the fence. And so we need to have compassion. We need to have value for human life that hasn't come to Christ yet as well. So anyway, again, if I had just offended anybody, you come up to me after church, and I, then for your sake I will never do that again. Um, and I mean that. And maybe I shouldn't have used that illustration. So anyway, well, let's go on. And so again, this whole thing, verse 7, um, to populate, obviously, to value human life was important. Okay? If all of a sudden, you know, Noah's kids or grandkids just start murdering everybody. It would never take place what God knew needed to take place. Well, then it goes into this covenant, verse 8. Then God spoke to Noah and to his sons with him, saying, Now behold, I myself do establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the cattle, and the beast of the earth with you, for all that comes out of the ark, every, even every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you, and all flesh shall never again be cut off by the water of the flood, neither shall there again be a flood to destroy the earth. God said, this is a sign of the covenant which I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all successive generations. I set my bow, and of course that's a rainbow, in the cloud, and it shall be for a sign of a covenant between me and the earth. It shall come about when I bring a cloud over the earth that the bow will be seen in the cloud. And I'll remember my covenant 
that which is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh and never again shall the water become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the cloud, then I'll look upon it to remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. And God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant which I've established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. And so a visible reminder that God gave mankind that, listen, don't fear the earth being flooded again to the point that it was before. And for you and I, that may not mean much. Um, most of the time we're kind of sentimental about rainbows and when they appear we just kind of go wow you know when you're a kid if you were like me you tried to find the end of the rainbow because somebody told you there was a pot of gold at the end of the rainbow and it took me a while my mom probably laughed realizing you never can find the end of the rainbow and you can't you can drive and in my case ride your bike forever in Ballard and you'll never find the end of that rainbow it's just you know it's just you understand that type of stuff And so this is a reminder. But think about it. For you and I, why it might not mean as much, how important this was for Noah and his sons and grandchildren. Because could you imagine that you came through that flood and you now passed it on to your children and grandchildren and you were telling them about that flood and all of a sudden it started to rain. And no big deal if it was just an afternoon shower, but could you imagine if it was like Seattle? And it not only started to rain, it kept raining. And it didn't last one day, it lasted two days and into 20 days. And don't you think in the back of their mind they might have thought, oh no, he's doing it again and we haven't built an ark this time. And so God would have, God would have by the rainbow reminded them, no, 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 just rain. I'm just taking care of the earth and taking care of things and I will not destroy the earth again this way. And so it's a, it's a reminder, isn't it, that, that of God's love for us. The earth will, you should know, be destroyed someday. Our last study in the book of Revelations, we saw that. Um, and so when times get to be similar like the times of Noah, um, it will be destroyed, but not with water, but with fire. And Second Peter 3, 7 tells us that, but by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, um, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. And so there will be another destruction of the earth as the new heaven and the new earth come in. But next time it will be by fire and not by water. Verse 18. Then the sons of Noah who came out of the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And Ham was the father of Canaan. And so, again, what I said to begin with, from these kids, all we all come from. This is a list of nations. And you can grab those sheets on chapter 10 there and read about it. And you'll kind of get a sense of, wow, all the people of the world came from here. And so verse 20. Then Noah began farming and he planted a vineyard. And so they got off the ark, and things had been destroyed. Um, but time had passed, really. Ham, um, when it mentions Canaan, that's Ham's son. And so there was time, at least, for Noah's children to start having children. And so it's thought that it was probably somewhere between about 10 and 20 years had passed. And in that time, Noah then, among other things, he planted a vineyard. And so verse 21, he drank of the wine and became drunk. He uncovered himself inside his tent. Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father, and he told his two brothers outside, but Shem and Japheth took a garment, and they laid it upon their shoulders and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father, and their faces were turned away, so they did not see their father's nakedness. And when Noah woke from his wine, he knew what his youngest son had done to him. And so here we see something that really maybe you've never, ever thought of, the flaw in Noah's life. 
you know, not much is really told about Noah. Really, God tells us what we need to know about Noah because it pertains to continuing life and the flood. So there's so much about his life that isn't recorded. But at least here, and, and, and really it's in the later years of his life, probably around 600, he'll live to um, 950, um, he makes a mistake and he becomes drunk and it's a shame to him and it creates all uh, types of problems. And if you do some reading in this area, I just need to show you that there's a couple approaches that people, when they look at this passage, they look at it. One is that Noah did this deliberately. And so in other words, Noah knew that if you make wine, my, wine would ferment, and if you drink too much of it, you'd get drunk. And so there are those that say, no, it was a deliberate act on Noah, and thus it was sin. But others say it wasn't a deliberate sin. He uh, drank some wine, not realizing that uh, it had fermented and would cause this, and so he drank of it, became drunk, and passed out. And let's be honest to the text. What we have is what we have, so I really can't say, you know, this is it or that is it. We really don't know. But, you know, it's interesting. There are some things to take from this. First of all, let me just share with you that I think there's some insights to alcohol here that we do need to be aware of as believers. First, we know the word tells us that we are never to be drunk as believers. Paul said in Ephesians 5.18, And do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. And so you and I are never to get to the point where we are drunk because we're filling us with something that really isn't God. It isn't the Lord. When the Lord's desire is that he be the one who is filling our life, who is leading our life, who is really the one controlling our life. And so that's one of the things that we know for sure is that we could just say biblically, it's never God's will that you and I would ever be drunk. Now that doesn't mean it doesn't happen. It happens, but we shouldn't do it. Second, if one is going to drink, I think it's important that we are mindful that there are other people that it can stumble. And this is important. Now, I need to tell you, because there's arguments here, there are those believers that say, you know, you never should ever drink. There's others that say, no, the Bible doesn't say that. And that is the truth. The Bible does not forbid the drinking of alcohol. I mean, Paul told Timothy a little wine was good for his stomach. And so we've got to be true to the Scripture. But I think at the same time, we need to be mindful. It's clear we're never to drink to the point of being drunk. And we've got to be mindful of what does our example do to other people. And that's a very important thing. You may be strong, and it may not be an issue for you, but remember what Paul said about eating meat in Romans, that you have to consider the weaker brother. And so this is an important issue, and I think it's something that you and I need to understand, that you just can't do it and, and act like it's no big deal. You need to be mindful of what you're doing. A third thing is that, just be honest with us, I mean, this whole situation, drinking leads to so many things that are bad. It leads to stupidity and foolishness. It leads to immorality, um, and even death accidentally and death with intent. And you could say that drinking and over-drinking just basically tends to lead to sinful behavior. In Proverbs 20, verse 1, it confirms it when it says that wine is a mocker, strong drink, a brawler, and whoever is intoxicated by it is not wise. So there it is. It's as clear as Ephesians is. Or how about Proverbs 23 at verse 29 when it says even more so, Woe, who has woe, who has sorrow, who has contention, who has complaining, who has wounds without cause, who has redness of eyes, those who linger long over wine, and those who go to taste mixed wine. Do, do not look on the wine when it is red, when it sparkles in the cup, 
<laughs> and when it goes down smoothly, at the last it bites like a serpent and stings like a viper. Your eyes will see strange things and your mind will utter perverse things. And I thought, Lord, isn't this interesting that on New Year's Eve we find ourselves in this passage? Because what? You know, if you've been looking in the paper on the in the entertainment section... They've told you all the different places you can go tonight, the restaurants that are going to have the best party, right? And I was thinking, you know, you kind of get the impression that if you don't go out and party hardy tonight, you know, you're really not bringing in the new year. I got news for you. I bring in the new year about nine o'clock and, uh, you know, and by that, I mean, that's about, well, I might make it till 10, okay? But I cannot remind you, I, I can't think of the last time I was up at midnight. I don't know if some of you guys are just going, my kids, you know. I've always wanted to go down the Space Needle, you know. But life will go on, you know. The Space Needle can celebrate without me. Because I just get tired and I go to bed. But, but really, it's interesting that, you know, here it is, one of the greatest party and nights of the year, and we find ourselves in this. And, you know, what I just read to you out of Proverbs is exactly what will happen tonight. It will cause some to mock others, and that's what Proverbs said happens. Some to fight. It will bring contention between people. It will cause some to see strange things, others to utter perverse things. And let me tell you guys, some of you may not understand, but there's others of you that know exactly what I'm talking about. From my days in the Salvation Army and my days of working with alcoholic, mostly alcoholic men, but alcoholic women as well, I'll tell you, as I used to be strung out on heroin, people get strung out on alcohol to the same degree where there's hallucination and everything else when they try to come off. And so it is a, a very serious thing. And so that happens. There's these perverse things. They see strange things. And, and sorrow, as we know, some tonight will die, sadly, because somebody thought they could drive and be drunk and lives will be taken and others will be left behind to deal with the pain of that. Over 100,000 people in America die every year in alcohol-related deaths and it costs our nation billions upon billions of dollars. And so that's one of the things, if you say, you know, what can we be motivated by here? That's one of them. And so, and again, that's what we see Noah did. Whether it was intentional or unintentional, it doesn't matter. As he drank and as he became drunk, it led to nakedness. It led to him passing out. It led to shame before one of his sons, as I'll show you, one of his grandsons. And finally, it led to a huge division within the family and no doubt hurt that went on for year after year after year. And again, I thought, you know, it may seem kind of in our culture today, and our culture is a loose culture. You that are my age, you're in your early 50s, and we that grew up in the 60s, we understand what looseness is. I'd be ashamed to tell you of some of the stuff I did and some of the stuff I was involved with before I came to Christ. You would say, well, that is absurd. That is gross. And you're right, it is. But that is how loose our culture at least was and in many areas our culture still is and so sometimes we read something like this and we think wow this is kind of old fashioned what's the big deal here but it is a big deal because Noah um, we see that this was not good for Noah Noah was a man of God and Noah was a leader of other people his family his grandkids of, of really the world in a sense at that time and this was un, unbefitting for him. And then we see Ham seeing his father in that condition naked. Then it led to Ham doing the, to, to doing the wrong thing. In verse 22, it says he told then his other two brothers, which meant that he probably had to go and find them. Remember, these guys are adults by now. They've got families of their own. They're living in their own tents in their own areas. And so 
we don't get a lot of detail, but if you piece it together, be a good detective, you realize, okay, something's wrong here. You know something's wrong because in verse 24 it says, Noah woke from his wine and he knew what his youngest son had done to him. And so that, the implication there, he had done something wrong. And so that's what takes place here is that Ham, seeing his father, what he really should have done is what his brothers did. He should have just gone and covered up his dad and said nothing. What does the scripture tell us? Love covers a multitude of sin. Guys, that's a good word at times. Sometimes the problem with a person's sin is that we don't cover it up and we go on to expose it and then it really becomes a horrible mess. But he should have done that, but he didn't do it. And so he goes out and and he, he told his other two brothers he had to go get him. And I think it implies that then there's something going on here. There's an agenda going on here on Ham's part. The Hebrew language, and again, this is where you need help to see this. It means that he literally told them something or told them about this and it means he told them with delight. And so you can imagine for a father to find himself in this situation and for one of his kids to just not cover just cover him up and be quiet but have delight in that then all of a sudden it shows us something is wrong and that's what it means here and when it told the delight they pretty well believed that there was a mocking on Ham's part he was making fun of his dad under uh, he was undermining his authority and then even he brought his son into it Ham brought Cain and his son into it Noah's grandchild And we know this because when Noah wakes, again, what does he do? Verse 25. And so he said, what? Cursed be Canaan, Ham's son. A servant of servants he shall be to his brothers. And so it's believed that the very thing that was in Ham, it was already in his son uh, Canaan. And so rather than sheltering even his brothers from it, he told his brothers about it. He somehow involved his, his own son in it. And the the very thing, and we know in families oftentimes, there's kind of a black sheep, if you will. And so it seems like maybe Ham had some issues with Noah, and he had passed those on to his son as well, and so evolved in son. And that's why then here, when it says you're kind of thinking, why did Canaan get cursed when Ham did it? Well, it's because it's believed that, no, no, Canaan was guilty as well. And so they both, and really, it's a... Both are being cursed, if you will. Both are being punished, if you will. Because not only do we know that Canaan then would become a servant of servants to his brothers, but Ham's punishment was that he was shown prophetically the fate of his son. And what a sad thing that is for a father. We all want our kids to succeed, don't we? And all of a sudden, if you were told that this is the fate of your child, that was punishment enough for Ham as he realized what he had done. So the chapter ends... Um, verse 26, he also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. And Noah lived 350 years after the flood. And so all the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. And just saying 950 years makes me want to go take a nap, because I really don't want to live that long. <laughs> you, know? you know, we're all going to live that long. We are. We're going to live for eternity. But we're going to... We're going to have new bodies and we're going to be residing in a different place. So it's going to be a whole lot better. But so as we look at then chapter 9, we can say the Bible is never dull, is it? The Bible has no problem with throwing the dirty laundry on the line and throwing it out there for the world to see. And I kind of like that. I'm glad the Bible does that. And so as we close today, let's go back now in our hearts and our minds to the whole idea of being diligent. See now how it applies? And as Noah failed in his later years of life, he wasn't diligent like he should be. 
It's a real message to you and I that we're to be diligent. We want to start well. We want to be doing well in the middle. And we want to finish as well as two. Remember, diligence, again, is to be meticulous, to be conscientious, to be thorough, to have an attentiveness, to be careful. And, and that's a good reminder, I think, for every single one of us. Because there's a tendency for you and I, the longer we walk with the Lord, we kind of let down our guard and think we can handle things that one time we'd have nef- nothing to do with. When I came to the Lord, I came out of that drug culture. My brother and I caught hepatitis from dirty needles. My brother's hepatitis went into cancer, and my brother died from that. And let me tell you, when I was converted, it was one of those radical conversions, right? And so I understood sin very clearly, and I wanted nothing to do with it. You know, I said, uh-uh. And yet, as we walk with the Lord for a while, for some reason we think, well, I can do that. And it's almost like juggling. We say, well, I'm not going to hold that. You know, I'm not going to put it in my pocket, but I'll just juggle these things that I know probably I shouldn't be juggling. And, of course, it's going to lead to a breakdown in our life and the diligency will fall away. And so Noah's failure in this way in the later years, it's a good reminder to you and I, be diligent. Be diligent in your walk. You know, our strength physically may be waning, but think about it. Shouldn't we as believers, shouldn't our spiritual strength uh, be strong and even growing stronger the older we get? And so, yeah, if you're 50, you understand what I'm talking about. 50 is like a magic age, isn't it? When you hit 50, you just start feeling things you never felt before in your body, you know? (laughs) And you realize it's not going to turn around. It's just going to get worse, okay? And yet, let it break down physically, but spiritually we can be strong and we can be growing stronger. And so that's a, a good word to us. And so here we see in Noah's testimony that there was a mar after they think probably about a 600-year mark. And, you know, let me just say something because I want to be careful here. I was listening to one of my favorite Bible teachers this week, and he talked about how this marred Noah's testimony. And I understand that, and I think you do too, but on the one hand, I want to say, aren't all our testimonies marred? And, you know, in a way, they, they are, aren't they? They really are. All of us are marred. And, unfortunately, like I said earlier about when you were singing that chorus, White as Snow, we're never going to get to the point of, we're never going to be perfect this side of heaven. And so on the one sense, you need to be careful that you don't hear me saying today that Noah blew it and he should have lived a perfect life because I don't think that's what um, God says. I I think God knows there's going to be failure in a life. But on the other side, be careful that you don't uh, take that, um, that aspect that we know is going to happen, there's going to be failure, and then you use it as an excuse to be less diligent than you can be in the Lord. And so, will there be failure? Yes. Does the blood cover that failure? Is there grace for the failure? Of course there is. But at the same time, God has given us his spirit that you and I can live diligent lives and be what he wants us to be. And so, you see it's a good end of the year message or the beginning of the year message, isn't it? Be diligent, you guys, as we enter into 2007. And I'm going to give you four ways, real quick. Okay, They're real simple. I was thinking, you know, sometimes it's... The things we need to do are really simple things. They're never complicated. And so you say, Scott, how can I be more diligent this year? Here they are. One, read the Word. You say, well, Scott, I read the Word. Well, good. Keep reading the Word. Don't stop. Don't think I've read it enough. I only need to read it twice a week now when I used to read it every day once I got saved. No, read the Word. Stay in the Word. Get in the Word. Look to the Word. Know more of the Word at the end of 2007 than you did at the beginning of 2007. Second of all, pray. Again, you say, I know this, Scott. Well, good. Are you praying? You know? And so we all need to pray and to pray more. 
That's another thing to help you be diligent. Third thing, and again, this is an important one. Have the mindset. Your mindset. Your attitude of yourself is this is what you are. You are a slave of Jesus Christ. You guys, I'll tell you, hands down, the problems I deal with in the church with people always go back to the fact that a believer has stopped being the slave and the servant they're supposed to be. You say, well, Scott, I don't like that. Well, take it up with God, okay? Because I don't know what to tell you. But that's what he says we are to be. We are to be slaves. And he says that, and Jesus was our example, who being God, Philippians chapter 2, did not consider that a thing to be held on to, but he set aside that divinity, if you will. He, he didn't stop being divine, but he, he didn't that. And he became man, took on the, the form of sinful man, took on the form of a servant and obeyed his father entirely. And you guys, let me tell you, you want to live a diligent life, that's an important thing. Don't see yourself as more than that. You're a slave and I'm a slave. And when we remember that, when we have the attitude of that and a servant, how good things are. Some of you here having problems in your marriage? Ask yourself, are you being a servant? Are you being a slave? You know. The other day, yesterday, I'll give you a little secret, guys. I was a busy day. I had a funeral and studying and, you know, Saturdays, a lot of times I really don't, it's not a day off for me. And so I got up and I had studied and I had some coffee and wink and made some breakfast and, and I read the paper and as I was headed back downstairs to study, she said to me, are you done with the paper? And I said, yes, I am. And I put the magazines on there because I didn't know what you do. And as I went downstairs, the Lord said, you rat. What she really was saying is it's your paper. Would you put it in the recycle bin? You know? And the Lord convicted me and said, Scott, you failed to be a slave right there. You failed that because that was your responsibility. And, you know, it was right. And so, again, that's important. And then fourthly, serve. See, I want to make sure you understand there's a difference. Because you can serve, but you can have not the attitude of a slave. And so we want to be in the word. We want to pray. We want to have the mindset of a servant of a slave. And we want to serve. In our homes, in our families in our workplace, towards non-believers, towards towards believers. And if we do that, you will have a diligent year. And everybody said, Amen. Amen. All right, let's stand.